0: Okay, there we go. Uh, Welcome, everybody. And uh, let's hope that this hour of Torah study again brings us stimulation and insight and inspiration. The Torah portion is, which is in the book of Numbers. I'll tell you more about it. But first, let's recite the blessing for sitting Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher kitshanu v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of the universe, who gives us mitzvot through which to become holy and who has given us the mitzvah of studying Torah together. Okay. This Torah portion, is Numbers chapters 13 through 15, and it's called shlach lecha, send for yourself, or a send out, uh, because um, the uh, Torah portion begins, God said to Moses saying, send forth men of repute to uh, scout the land of Canaan. So this is the passage, this is the section which is a very detailed and very, um, dramatic. That's the right word. It's incredibly dramatic story where one, a leader from each tribe. So let me describe the story to you. And then, um, because it's worth telling over and over again. And then, uh, I, uh, drew some inspiration, uh, from, um, Again from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs that sent me off in a new direction that I hadn't considered before that I'll explore with you together. So 12 people are chosen, one from leader from each tribe, to go scout out the land of Canaan. And uh, of those ten names, two of them will be very memorable. One is Joshua, of Nun, and the other is Caleb ben Yefuna, Caleb the son of Yephunneh. They are the ones who are, I think, the heroes of this story. So um, Gwen, let's put up um, Numbers chapter 13 verse 17. When Moses Oh, can you get a version up that, uh, oh, I see. You've got the uh, verse numbers down on the lower right. That works too. Oh, there we go. That's easier. Good. Now, when Moshe sent them to scout out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up this way through the Negev, the parched land, and then you are to go up into the hill country and see the land, what it is like. And the population that is settled in it, are they strong or weak, are they few or many? And what the land is like, where they are settled, is it good or bad? And what the towns are like, where they are settled therein, are they encampments or are they fortified walled cities? And what's the land like, is it fat or lean? Are there trees or not? Now exert yourselves and take some of the fruit of the land, for these are the days were the days of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and scouted out the land from the wilderness of Tsin as far as Rehov, coming towards Hamat. They went up through the Negev and came as far as Hebron. There are Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of the Anakites. Anakites means giants. Now Hebron had been built seven years before Tohan of Egypt. Uh, I guess I need to remind us all again, This is not history. This is sacred story. So there are references to um, the giants of old. There are references to all kinds of kind of uh, legendary motifs. Uh, They came to the wadi of Eshkol. Wadi Eshkol, which means clusters. A cluster of grapes is called an Eshkol. And they cut down from there a branch, and one cluster of grapes was so big that they had to carry it on a bar held by two. And they took some pomegranates and some figs from the place. And they called that place Wadi Eshkol on account of that cluster of grapes that enormous cluster of grapes that the children of Israel had cut down there that took two people to carry. Now they returned from scouting out the land at the end of 40 days. That's that number 40 again. They went and came before Moshe, before Aharon, and before the entire community of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They returned word to them and to the entire community and let them see the fruit of the land. They brought back this this incredible harvest. Now they recounted to him, they said, okay, so now these are the scouts. We came to the land that you sent us to, and yes, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here's its fruit. And then they say this key word, uh, accept. And the Hebrew word's even stronger, I would say. FS. Gwen, if you can find it and highlight it, great. FS, some of you may know what FS means in uh, modern Hebrew. It means zero, right? FS is zero, nothing. So I would translate that negating all of this, not just accept. Accept is like a really, I, I would choose a much stronger word in English. Negating all of this. The people that live there are fierce. The cities are fortified and large. And all the descendants of the giants, we saw there. And Amalek is settled in the Negev land and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the hill country, the Canaanites by the sea and on the shores of the Jordan. Okay, so the report is, yeah, it's flowing with milk and honey, here's its fruit. Nonetheless, Ephes, it all means nothing. It zeros it out. Okay. Now Caleb, Caleb, hushed the people before Moshe and said, Let us go up, yes, up and possess it, for we can prevail, yes, prevail against it. But the men who went up with him said, No, we are not able to go up against the population. It is stronger than we. And so they gave out dibat a false report of the land that they had scouted out. And also means a, um, let's see, slanderous, uh, we might say. Um, oh, let's see. How does my other translation uh, translate Calumny. Yes, false accusations um, of the land that they had scouted out to the children of Israel saying, the land we crossed through to scout it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. Eretz ochelet yeshveha. All the people that we saw in its midst were gigantic. (laughs) For there we saw the giants. How many times have I mentioned the giants so far? The children of Anak come from the giants. And we were in our own eyes like grasshoppers. And thus were we in their eyes. Many years I focus on this line with you all. And I want to just just point it out now, though we may not focus on it entirely in this class. (laughs) We, so we're looking at these guys. In our own eyes, we felt like, grasshoppers, insects. And so we must have appeared to them. Okay, so they're ramping it up, right? Giants, giants, giants. And we felt like grasshoppers. Nobody's ever gonna get to their promised land if they feel like they're an insect, right? Okay, so it goes on. That's, a cent- that's sort of central line in the um, narrative but we'll read on. So, Oh, that's the end of the chapter. So we're going to chapter 14. Thanks, Gwen. Here's what happened to the children of Israel. The entire community raised its voice and wept and wailed all night. And they grumbled and complained against Moshe and against Aharon. All the children of Israel, they said to them, the entire community, everybody's crying. I wish we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. I wish we'd die here. Why is Yudhe bringing us to this land so that we'll fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder? Tovlanu. Hello, Tovlanu. Wouldn't it be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Perhaps you remember in the last uh, week's uh, portion, where they were remembering all the meat and the fish and the melons they ate for free in Egypt. Uh, uh, they are just constantly hoping they can go back to their previous condition. So they said, each person, one to the next, let's go back, let's return to Egypt. It's a complete, the, the, this careful picture, this incredibly careful camp, Uh, well-regimented, organized. They spent a year setting up at Mount Sinai with each tribe in its place, everyone knowing how they were going to move, knowing they're supposed to follow the cloud at day and the fire at night. You know, they're going somewhere. Picture everything just falling apart into chaos now. Let's go back. So Moshe and Aaron flung themselves on their faces before the entire assembled community of the children of Israel and now it says, Yehoshua ben Nun and Caleb, son of Yifunah, alone from among the 12 who'd scouted the land, they tore their garments. That's a symbol of, of grief. And they said to the entire community of the children of Israel, no, the land we crossed through the scouted out, good is that land exceedingly, exceedingly beautiful Hebrew, tova. Ha'aretz, me'od, me'od. It's incredibly, exceedingly good. (sighs) Well, and then they continued if Yudhe Vavhe is pleased with us, he will bring us to this land and give it to us, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Everyone agrees it's flowing with milk and honey. That's been affirmed. But do not rebel. Um, against yod uh, vav And do not be afraid of the people of the land. For food for us are they, they we, they're. It's not a land that, this is a rhetorical wordplay in the story. It's not a land that eats its inhabitants. Our, they're our meal. We're going to make a meal out of them their protector has turned away from them and YHWH is with us do not be afraid of them and it doesn't work the entire community of Israel got ready to pelt them with stones it's completely out of control and the glo- and then the glory of YHWH appeared at the tent of meeting in the sight of all the children of Israel and YHWH said to Moshe How long will this people scorn me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs that I have done among them?" Okay, if you take our exodus, our Torah on its own, you know, just take it on its own uh, narrative. Plagues in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, splitting the sea, manna, the enemy drowning in the sea, Mount Sinai, for God's sake, the whole everyone hurt, and God is like, What is with these people? and they're ready to stone them, and God's presence appears. It's just such high drama because the most dramatic moment is coming. God says to Moses, How long will this people scorn me? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I've done among them? Let me strike them down with pestilence and dispossess them. Moses, I'll make you a great nation, even mightier than them. Now, this is a typical interchange between Moses and God. Um, because last week, Moses said, just take me out and shoot me. I can't do this anymore. And God said, no, 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 Okay, 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 it's all right, it's all right. I'll give you... Um, uh, 70 elders to share the burden of leadership. It's okay, Moses, calm down. Now it's Moses' turn to calm God down. And this is what Moses says, to calm God down. Oh, yeah? God, what are you talking about? When the Egyptians hear about this, that you brought up this people with your power from the midst of Egypt, they will tell it to the all of the people in their land that they heard that, uh, all this stuff, you, you are yod heh in the midst of this people, eye to eye you were seen, O yod your cloud standing over them in a column of cloud going before them by day and in a column of fire by night. Oh, this whole Egypt thing that you freed the slaves. If you put this people to death, then all the nations that are going to heard about it are going to say, Oh, so... Yehovah brings them out of the land, and then can't get them to the promised land, so he kills them in the wilderness. In other words, think about your reputation. I love that uh, Moses appeals to God's ego. Um, you can't, you can't do that. You'll be the laughing stuff. Okay, that's one approach. So now, please let the power of my Lord to be to forgive be great as you have spoken saying back on Mount Sinai, Moses said, God, I need to know and understand you better. Please show me your glory and show me your essence. And at that point in the book of Exodus, God said, I am long suffering and loyal. I bear iniquity and transgression and forgive. Um, and he said, and remember God, remember you said you're a forgiving sort. So even when you're angry now, remember you said this is your true nature. And uh, so then in chapter in verse 19, Moses says, "So please pardon the sin of this people, since your love and loyalty is so great, just as you have been tolerating them and forgiving them until now." And God said, Yerivavai said. Salachti kidvarecha. I forgive them as you have requested. Which is such a powerful line that it becomes part of our Yom Kippur liturgy. Salachti kidvarecha. I have forgiven. But uh, here it's qualified. As I live and as my glory fills all the earth, I'm telling you everything I did, and you these people have tested me too many times. If they should see the land about which I swore to their fathers, they're not going to see it. Forget about it. Only Caleb, and later Joshua, because there was a different kind of spirit in him, and he followed me fully. Him I'll bring into the land that he is about to enter, and his seed will possess it. Now, the Amalekite and the Canaanite are settled in the lowlands, so tomorrow, God says, "Turn around and march into the wilderness by way along the Reed Sea." In other words, you're not going up to the Promised Land right now. Um, uh, I lost my place. What verse? Oh, now nah you'd have. Oh, right. Thank you. Say to them, "As I live." This is the word of Yehovah. If not as you have spoken in my ears, thus I do to you. In this wilderness shall your corpses fall. All of those of you who counted for battle, including all your number from the age of twenty and upward, you that have grumbled against me. If any of you should enter the land over which I lifted my hand in an oath to have you dwell in it, except for Caleb son of Yefuneh and Joshua son of Nun. Your little ones whom you said would become plunder, I will let them enter. They shall come to know the land that you have spurned, but your corpses, yours shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall graze in this wilderness for 40 years. Thus they shall bear your whoring and your, till your corpses come to an end in the wilderness. According to the number of days that you scouted out the land, 40 days, for each day a year, for each day a year, you are to bear your iniquities 40 years. Thus you will come to know my hostility. I am Yodhe I have spoken. If I do not do this to this whole evil community that has come together against me in this wilderness, they will come to an end. There they shall die. <sighs> this is where, instead of walking right up into the land, They learn they have to spend 40 years in the wilderness and that they are going to die in the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land. And the men whom Moshe had sent to scout out the land returned and caused the entire community to grumble against him by bringing a negative report about the land, a false report. The men died, those bringing a report of the land, an ill one in a plague. So the 10 scouts die, but Yoshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Yufuna, remained alive from those men that had gone to scout out the land. Now, in Moshe, okay, so Caleb and Joshua are the only two people, adults, who left Egypt as adults who will enter the promised land. The only two. They're very special in terms of the, the deep teachings in this story. Now, when Moshe spoke all these words of the children of Israel, the people mourned exceedingly. Think about this. And they started early in the morning and went up to the top of the hill country saying, here we are. Let us go up to attack the place you've pro- you promised us. We're sinned. We're sorry. But Moshe said, now you're going to disobey another order of yod You will not succeed. Do not go up. God is not in your midst. You will be smitten by your foes. The Amalekites and the Canaanites are there to face you will fall by the sword for since you have turned from following after hiva, your will not be there for you, but they went up recklessly to the top of the hill country while the while the Ark of the covenant and Moshe did not go with them and stayed in the camp and the Amalekites and the Canaanites who were settled in that hench- hill country came down, they crushed them and struck them at a place called Horma, which means utter destruction. Okay. That's the dramatic section. I know many of you know it, but I wanted to read the whole thing today. And, um, if you have any comments or questions, you're always welcome to type them in the chat. Uh, And then I'll also tell you what direction I was taken in today to read the story. So clearly, the reason they wander 40 years in the wilderness is that they aren't able to move with faith and confidence towards their goal. And so they have to do an entire generational cycle, 40 years in the Torah, Until all those for whom slave in the enslaved mentality, the feeling that they there's no, the sense that we're insects and that there's no way we can reach that goal. Just no way. So they're constantly falling to pieces, constantly unable to maintain their direction, constantly giving up and wanting to go back, they are not going to be able to get there. Only their children, born and raised outside of slavery, might possibly have the sense that they can enter their promised land and that they can overcome their foes. There are, fo- there are forces that oppose us. Uh, and how do you confront them? How do you have the courage to overcome them? How do you understand that the people who look like a giant to you are not necessarily able to overpower you? You're gonna have to have faith and find out. You're gonna have to keep marching. Okay, so this is where I want to get into this beautiful insight that I didn't know about that um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes about today. He, the, we think of these 12 um, leaders who go up into the land usually as spies. Isn't that the familiar word that you're used to? Our translation says scouts but we think of them as they're going to reconnoiter the land, right? They're going up surreptitiously, they're going up to uh, spy out the land so that the people can uh, 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 figure out what the best strategy will be to take it and overcome it. It turns out that the word for spy is a miragel, to spy is liragel or lachpor. Liragel is to, to is to reconnoiter, and lachpor is to investigate. But the only word used for these scouts in this portion, and it's used over a dozen times. So when a word is repeated over and over again, it's trying to send us a message, and then in the beautiful tradition of uh, Jewish Torah study, we look at that word and we take a deep dive into it. The Torah wants us to hear this word and the word is Latur, it's not to spy and it's not to investigate. Latur, um, uh, I was just looking at uh, some comments and I'll tell you back. Uh, Roberta Wall said, this harkens back to Adam and Adam and Chaya, Chava, Adam and Eve in the garden. When will we Jews, human beings, stop seeing ourselves as victims? She made me do it. <laughs> yeah. And Wendy Gold wrote, I'm not exactly sure what I'm trying to say, but this made me think of people who, after the Holocaust, gave up on their belief that Yudhe in Yudhe Bhavha, that they had been abandoned. Mm-hmm. Barb says, this parsha has always moved me. I named my son Caleb Kalev. Because of his vision, he saw the land, not just for what it was, but also the promise of what it could be and his faith and trust. Yes, Caleb is a real hero in the Bible. I'm glad you named your kid Caleb Kalev. Okay, so the word Latour in modern Hebrew means being a tourist. A tayar in modern Hebrew is a tourist. So, quoting a um, uh, medieval commentator called the Malbim, uh Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explores, well, what's the difference between being a spy and being a tourist? That was an interesting question to me. Um,
1: I just want to interrupt you for a minute because Rabbi Ellen had chatted to me privately. I didn't want to interrupt your reading. The, the um, graphic for the Ministry of Tourism in Israel is two people with grapes hanging between them.
0: It's true. It's true. If you look at a t- Ministry of Tourism uh, car or uh, office, it's always two stylized individuals with a, carrying a pole with a giant cluster of grapes uh, because they were the, it's the Ministry of Tourism. So thank you. And Carol wrote, reminds me of us old activists who clearly not get to the promised land, but our young people are out there and they don't know what can't be done. Nicely said, Carol, nicely said. And if you don't know what can't be done, then maybe it can be done. And every generation, in every generation, we, we give it our best shot. And so, yes. I'm working, I'm working hard to just encourage those young people. Yep. And I'll ride on their coattails maybe, huh? I was in Kingston yesterday for the um, um, the uh, March for Black Lives. Um, and uh, yes, I was grateful that all the people speaking were teenagers and in their 20-somethings. And I just want to be there to support them. Roberta said, there's a conversation in the world of trauma healing between the difference between being a consumer and a participant. That's an interesting direction to go. One of the questions uh, about um, the relatively lower incident of PTSD among Israeli army veterans compared to, uh, say, American army veterans is that the Israeli veterans, and I'm not endorsing the military, I'm just, but the point here is that they feel that they are part of a project that is endorsed by the people who send them off, right? So if you, so you can process trauma better if you think your life has a purpose. And that's an interesting and big discussion to have that that you're do, that you're incurring suffering or pain for a reason a bigger reason than yourself yeah it's a fascinating area of study and it sort of makes simple logical sense to me too um if we can give meaning to our struggles then our struggles become integrated into our sense of self and not just something that has victimized us so being a tourist. Uh, the Malbim, I'm quoting now from uh, Jonathan Sachs. The Malbim is the commentator he's quoting, explains the difference simply between being a spy and being a tourist. La tour means to seek out the good. That is what tourists do. They go there to see what's beautiful, majestic, and inspiring. They don't spend their time as a tourist trying to find out what is bad. But to be a lachpor or Ragel is the opposite. You are searching out a place's weaknesses and vulnerabilities. That is what spying is about. The exclusive use of the verb latur in our Parsha, repeated 12 times, is there to tell us that the 12 men were not sent to spy but they didn't understand their mission. I, I was really captured by that thought. In fact, so I did my linguistic thing and the verb Latour doesn't show up anywhere else in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, except in one line in Deuteronomy uh, and um, anywhere else. It shows up a couple times in Ecclesiastes and it's just, Latour is the word of this Parsha. Uh, elsewhere, it talk, if you're going up to Reconnoiter, you're called a miragel, a spy. Um, so there's something that the repetition of the word Latour in this Parsha is trying to teach us. And I love the way the Mal- Malbim puts it so simply. It's about they were sent up. So why... So then we get to the question of why would they need to send scouts? They're following the cloud. They're following the pillar of fire. It's worked for them so far. So one explanation is Moses and God have this idea that, hey, let's, you know, Moses, I haven't been there either. Let's let's send some people out to take some photos and and bring back some of the fruit and all of that so we can get excited about going on our going going there to the land of our ancestors that was promised to us so the purpose of the scouts was to become be tour guides as it were and to get us all excited about um, having they couldn't take photos but they could bring back pomegranates and uh, d- and grapes and And what do the 10 of them do? They say, I'll I'll just read the line for you. You don't have to put it back up, uh, Gwen. This is what they told them when they returned. We came to the land you sent to us, sent us to. And it does indeed flow with milk and honey. And here's the fruit. Okay, they should have shut up then. Uh, I love this. It's like, don't... Thinking what, what Carol said about us older people, I have to just I am like with my daughters right now. I am just biting my tongue because they are on the go. And what what I'm supposed to like take them down a notch right now when they're full of righteous fire? Um that's not right. It's not right. That's what I that's what I've been thinking about. Um, I'll just stand there and cheer, you know. It's like that's that's what we got to do right now, and um, and these ten should have shut up, and instead they use the word FS. FS is like a complete shutdown. It means zero, nothing, nada, zilch, forget about it. Right? We tried that. And it didn't work. Why are you even trying? And so um, uh, what um, Rabbi Sek says is they misunderstood their mission. And the Hebrew insists over and over and over again uh, that their mission was to bring back enthusiasm and um, show them the giant grapes. Say, hey, let's go. Um, we, I guess, I guess the message is we'll deal with the disappointment as we go along, but there's no other way to live. We Let's go. And, uh, instead they say, here's the fruit, milk and honey. It's true. It's all true, but you'll, ne- it'll never happen. Uh, now as spies, uh, they might've been giving an accurate report, right? It's gonna be when Joshua eventually, 40 years later, enters the land, it is quite a struggle to take possession of the land. The battles are real. Think, Remember Battle of Jericho? That just getting started. The book of Joshua is one of the most, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's just a book of battles the battle in the Valley of Ai, the battle of Jericho, the battle. It's like, they were right. Um, but um, that wasn't the point. And so only Caleb and Joshua understand the message. No, no, it's a exceedingly good land. Eretz tovah me'od me'od. Exceedingly good land. So in this linguistic um, way of understanding the Torah. The word Latour, to be a tourist, is the, is the verbal theme of the Parsha, which, so I want to show you how the artful Torah then concludes this portion, because for me that confirms a lot of what uh, is, uh, I was learning today from Rabbi Sack. So if Gwen would put up the very end of the portion, Chapter 15, verse 37. Those of you familiar with the synagogue service will recognize this passage. It comes out of nowhere, supposedly. So we have to look for the connection. The narrative has happened, and then we hear this. And God said to Moshe, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they are to make themselves tassels, tzitzit. Tzitzit, on the tallit, right? Tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they are to put on the corner tassel a thread of blue-violet, or royal blue, or purple. T'chelet is a particular deep blue. Mm -hmm. And this shall be for you a tassel that you may look at it and keep in mind, all the commandments of Yudhe Vaphe and observe them, so that you not go scouting around after your heart and after your eyes, which you go whoring after. Okay, Hebrew, velotaturu. There it is, Gwen, thank you. So the very first word of our parsha, first sentence, send out men to tour the land. That was the very first verse. Now we're at the very end of the part, And don't tour after, now your heart here is not a compliment. This isn't follow your heart. That's not what it's saying. The heart here and your eyes are that aspect of you that gets um, distracted in this case from the big goal, right? So that you go whoring after or lusting after. Um, so that you can keep in mind and observe all of my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yod He your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to be to you a God. I am Yod He your God. So the word Latur, to tour, is used here as don't go touring after what distracts you from your, from your biggest goal, but rather uh, keep your eye on this tassel, which is supposed to remind you of the mitzvot. Now, my tassel with the royal blue, the tchelet, is in the sanctuary. So I couldn't put my hands on it right away. This one is just white. And those of you who know this information, it's that that royal blue, which is a very specific ancient dye, which is drawn from a mollusk, the ink of a mollusk, and was considered all over the Mediterranean to be the color of royalty. Uh, this production of that stopped when essentially when the Roman Empire collapsed and the dye became unavailable. And so the practice of a blue thread fell out of favor for centuries and centuries. In the last few decades, some Jews realized we can produce this dye again. And so many people now have, are putting the blue thread back in their talit again. So that's what I wanted to explain. So this beautiful blue, royal blue thread. The rabbis ask, why royal blue? Why this color? And they say this beautiful poetic thing. So that when you look at that thread, you are reminded of the sea and the sky and the royal throne that sits above even the heavens. So looking at the blue thread according to the rabbinic understanding is supposed to take you away from your personal uh, distractions and get you to expand your perception and your perspective to the sea and the sky and the heavens above the heavens where the royal throne is visible. And again, this is beautiful figurative language. If you're standing on the seashore contemplating the horizon, where does your mind go, right? I mean, that's why I like going to the beach. I just sit there and look out at the sea and the sky and my little concerns. Uh, that which I lust after, that, that all gets put into perspective. So the purpose of the blue thread, as the tradition understands it, is to get you to look up from your petty concerns, your fears, your desires, your selfish needs, so that you can keep your eye on the biggest, magnificent, sense of understanding of creation, that this is a very, very good land. Um, so that linguistic tie-in, that they, they are sent up to tour the land, that Caleb and Joshua come back and say, no, 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 it's a very, very good land. We can go up to it. We can do this. Um, that word good is tied in for me with what lusting after your heart and your eyes means in Jewish tradition, which is called the Yetzer Hara, the evil impulse. If your attention is always firmly on what's in it for me, I need, I must, I want, uh, uh, I, I, I lust for, I desire, then in the Jewish tradition, this only leads ultimately to bad outcomes. Whereas if you can take all those impulses, look at the blue thread and expand your awareness, and then put all of that in service of going to the promised land, um, then... um, then you have uplifted yourself from the mentality of smallness and pettiness that the slaves are completely captive in. They can barely get their heads up out of their their needs and their miseries and their desires. Deborah says, is there a way to reconcile the moral dilemma of obeying God and of not taking land from the people living there. I know of no way to reconcile this if we take it literally, Deborah. Um, in the ancient world, um, warfare was the constant, um, feuding for limited resources was a given, and that's the story we've inherited. Um, so I can only treat this story as um, a um, mythical spiritual roadmap, rather than a physical one. And I think when we look at other ancient myths, whether they're, whether we're reading the Mahabharata, or uh, if from India, or any other great myths, there's always warfare. And uh, I think we have to be, um, I think, sophisticated enough to be able to make that distinction, and many, many people are not. Uh, um, this is an, in, it's like my Muslim friends who want, who, who for them, they're horrified that they know other Muslims who take the word jihad literally. Because for my Muslim friends, jihad is about the inner spiritual struggle and war that we're fighting and so on and so on. I, 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 I don't know a way if we take it literally to uh, reconcile. We have to take it metaphorically about our inner. Oh, and Carol raised her hand. Please, Carol, do you want to unmute yourself? Yeah. There you yeah. go.
1: Um, on, uh, last, not last Saturday, Saturday before when I did my Devar Torah during the service, my almost nine year old cousin was there and we had, uh, we had a Shabbos dinner or a Chavdalah dinner together that night. And, um, she was very concerned because she didn't think that God acted nicely, and she couldn't believe that God would would punish Miriam. She was very, very, very concerned. Mm -hmm. And both her mother and her grandmother are really experienced Jewish educators of children. So we had this Talmudic discussion on this nine-year-old level she asked questions about everything she wasn't going to take anything for granted but at one point i said to her you can you can do your own story and she thought about that for a while and a little while later she said okay i have my own story good she said mostly what she was concerned about was aaron because she couldn't believe that aaron's Aaron, and I think this is, a lot of people have thought this, Aaron's punishment was that Miriam got punished. But so she said Aaron was so upset that Aaron went out into outside the camp with Miriam and took good care of her. And God was so impressed by that that he healed them both. (laughs) Oh, fantastic.
0: (laughs) Um, That's beautiful. And Carol, you know, uh, when I teach these stories to kids, I since they're mostly concrete thinkers still, and this yeah. story is yeah. happening, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I give them complete encouragement to say what you don't like about the story and how you would say it so that they don't feel like they have to like, uh, uh, oh, succumb and give up their own um, yeah. uh, sense of what's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. thank you. Yeah, That's great. Maybe Aaron did that.
1: Maybe he did.
0: You know why? because Aaron's job as the high priest was to go out to the quarantine people and make sure they were healing all right that was his job so maybe we're on to something there
1: i'll tell her i mm-hmm. will okay mm-hmm.
0: beautiful thank you so i want to expand metaphorically that when we go to tour, um, that it's called when we're tourists, we're looking for the good. And there is a word for that in Hebrew. It's a considered a very high quality called hakarat hatov. Hakarat hatov, or if you're a Yiddish speaker, hakaras hatov, means recognizing the good. And it's considered to be a critical attribute for a life well lived. And what it means, I mean, it typically will, you could look it up, it typically will be translated as practicing gratitude. But what it literally means is looking for the good in every situation. Um, And so if we're told to spy out the land, Then we're told, and that's an important, in my opinion, uh, quality to be able to develop. That means we're there to assess, to investigate, to look for weak points in the argument, to, you know, that's important in that figurative scouting out what's next in our lives. But in order to get there, We have to practice primarily in every situation in our life, making sure we're looking for the good in every situation and recognizing it and kind of, I would say, sustaining ourselves with that. Because the bad is all there, right? But if we're not looking for the good, then we will be overwhelmed by the impossibility of what we face. I mean, what can I say? We're all going to die, right? (laughs) Like, it's true. So, But if we spend all our time just thinking we're all going to die, we might as well go back to Egypt. Might as well. So that this practice, and this is where I, this is the beautiful teaching I got today. They are not told to spy out the land. They are told to look for the good in it. So that we can continue on our journey with our heads held high, breathing the fragrant air, making sure we follow that cloud. It's like, so the practice of the scouts was to go and look for the good to be tourists and to come back with pictures and stories and, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, fruit. Boy, this place, you're gonna love it, let's go, you know? All the goodness that they saw there was their job. That was the task and that's the word that gets repeated over and over and over again in this portion. So, again, taking this journey to the promised land as our metaphor for life, we have to walk forward looking for the good. And yes, taking that blue thread in the garment we're supposed to wear all the time, right? The talit became a prayer shawl, but I'm sure you're aware that uh, uh, Orthodox Jews Uh, will wear those fringes under their shirt all the time. And uh, it's there to remind us of something. Of course, we forget because it's there all the time, but the purpose of the blue thread is to remind us to look towards the sea and the sky and the throne above the sky. So let's see, and Carol wrote, and the good in the tzitzit is the blue thread, yes. And Gail wrote, And the historical archaeological evidence indicated that there never was an Israelite conquest, rather a gradual assimilation with other inhabitants. In any case, we should not read it as giving us rights of conquest." Thank you, Gail. That's a whole other um, thread that, if we had more time, we would explore, which is that the archaeological record talks about a conquest. I mean, the, the literary record talks about a conquest, but there's no evidence of that in the archeological record, which strengthens the interpretation that the literary record is a mythical and um, aspirational sort of um, not an historical record. Uh, Thank you. Hakarat Hatov, Hakarat Hatov, here, I'll type it in. I don't, um, this is how it would be pronounced. Hakarat hatov.
1: Rabbi, if you spell it, I could type it in, in Hebrew.
0: Well, it comes from lahakir, which means to recognize. Uh, and uh, so the recognition of the good. So I want to bless us all that we can carry that blue thread with us. So that as we're heading in where, wherever we are in our lives, we're always remembering not to get dragged off which we will constantly. So then drag ourselves back and practice looking for the good in each situation um, so we can be delighted tourists in our lives. Isn't that a lovely image? Let's all go into our day and be delighted tourists without forgetting the other aspect of life that we're all deeply enmeshed in but boy it'll be good to be delighted tourists today ah are there roberta asked are there teachings about the relationship between shlach lecha and lech lecha um and i will say something about that oh thank you gwen there it is in hebrew characters um lech means go shlach means send but they both have the lecha which means Idiomatically means, you know, get going or go do it. The lecha is emphatic in that way. But what it means literally is either go for yourself or to yourself or send for yourself. So the commentary is about why it says shlach lecha. The traditional commentary is that why would God Ask them to send scouts up to the land. God knows what God's God's got it handled. So the the midrashic conversation that precedes that is that uh, the people said, where are we going? We don't know where we're going. And so God says to Moses, I think they need to get a report. So send for yourself, not for me. I mean, I don't, you know, says God. Send for your own benefit these uh, scouts up to the land. Just as Abraham is told, send go for your own benefit to uh, the land that I'm gonna show you. That's the connection I remember, Roberta. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, We've come to the end of our time together. And um, uh, I'm gonna say it again. I hope you can remember to be a delighted tourist in your life today as well as all the other uh, things you want to say. Carol, did you have something else you want to share to close? You're muted. Carol, you're muted.
1: I thought this was an exceptional class. I'm so excited by it. So thank you. That was all I wanted to say.
0: Oh, thank you. So now,